Welcome to Food Stories. I'm Barb Sheldon, and today at my kitchen table, I am so pleased to welcome food resilience specialist Saima Habib. Saima works for the Climate Adaptation, Climate and Environment Department at the City of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, and she has spent her life seeing the connections between food and belonging and resilience. This is going to be a great conversation. Saima, welcome to my kitchen table. Hi, Barb. It's nice to hear your voice after so many years of not hearing it during the COVID. (laughs) Yeah, we were, before we um, started the interview, we were just kind of catching up and saying that the last time we saw each other would have been at the Community Food Center in Calgary. And that was way pre-COVID because you reminded me that I had a teenager then and I don't have teenagers anymore. They have left. They've left me. So it has been way too long. And um, I've watched your work over the last few years and been keeping track of the amazing things that you're doing in like, you know, the healthiest non-stalker way. And um, I'm really excited to have you here today. So thank you so much for being here. Well, I appreciate your invite. Yeah, of course. So we always start our guests off by just saying five simple words, which is tell me your food story. Do you do you need more of a prompt or do you know where to begin? I mean, we can give it a shot because I feel like the the whole food thing just is so all encompassing for me that it's it's not really like one story. It's more like an anthology. Yeah. Um, and so and so uh, maybe ooh, like it's like how far back do you want to go? You work in food. So something has led you here. Maybe we can start with that. Yeah. Okay. So I guess as we're talking, this one memory sort of emerges for me and it's my mom. Uh, we lived in sort of a working class, lower income-ish neighborhood um, in Edmonton. So I grew up in Edmonton. Um, and my mom moved to Canada in 1988 or early 89, some somewhere around there. And I was born in late 89. And my dad had been here a little bit longer than that. Um, and so we lived in this community and my mom just had this propensity towards feeding people and taking care of them in that way. Um, and we had these these neighbors, um, and two of the kids were foster kids, and it was maybe not the most safe or nurturing environment for those children. Um, and so often they would come over and and just say things like they'd look at what we were eating and and say things like, "Oh, I'm just so hungry." And so my mom made made a point of feeding them. Um, and I think I like one day maybe said something a little snarky about it. Like, oh, like, why are you feeding them? Don't, can't their mom and dad feed them or whatever? Um, and my mom just sort of hushed me and was just like, this is what we do. Like we feed people when they say they're hungry, you feed people. Um, and so I think my food story sort of starts there. I think, and I think a lot of people's food stories start with their mom, um, because of the culture we live in, especially Mm -hmm. where you know, um, and it, I'm, it's changing. I know like in my, in my home with my partner, we, we definitely, there's a more equitable split, but I think generations prior, that's not necessarily the story. And, um, in, in many homes, uh, our first sort of experience of the food system is through our mother. And, you know, whether that's like re- literally out of the womb through, through breastfeeding possibly, or, 
you know, in an ongoing way as our mothers provide food for us and for all of the people that they love. Um, so yeah, I think, I think my food story starts there is just witnessing the capacity that my mother always had, uh, even as we sort of struggled with income, um, and in, in really complex situation where, you know, the, the family dynamic was not so healthy, um, that the one consistent sort of provision of love and care, no matter what, no matter how stressful things were, no matter how hard things were, um, it was food. And, uh, and my mom, you know, would grow carrots that she'd smuggled seeds from Pakistan, which is where my family is from. Um, and so Gosh. we had <laughs> a beautiful, bright red, much sweeter than Canadian carrots. Oh, <laughs> so cool. I love it. Yeah. And so we grew a lot of our own food and I had a little bit of a unique upbringing when it comes to food as well, because my parents were very concerned with the sort of health or nutritive quality of the food. And so I grew up on a lot of whole foods and um, my dad really believed in um, consuming more game meats. Uh, so even though that was not common for Pakistani families, uh, most Pakistani families ate like beef and chicken, you know, kind of your classic meats. We ate a lot of deer, elk, bison, um, at one point a llama, which I'm not like, I don't know how I feel about that now, but um, <laughs> we're not going to ask too many questions about the llama. <laughs> but there was just this sort of like ongoing reverence for food, um, this real, yeah, and this real belief that like, when you make money, a good portion of it should go towards food, which is a, you know, like a, a philosophy I still live by, which is, you know, no matter how much money you make, um, if you have the privilege to be able to do so, spend more money on food than really any other, you know, just other material goods. And, and it's sort of a philosophy I hold about our food system too, is that uh, increasingly we we aren't spending enough money on food and, and what the true cost of food is. Um, and that is also rife with complexities, but, um, but yeah, so I, I, I spent my, my childhood was really marked by that sort of reverence of food, that reverence for the soil reverence for animals. Even though I grew up in a city, it was very much a reverence for cooking things from scratch. Um, and I, I carried that uh, with me and and um, I left home at a, a fairly young age, just shy of 19, because like I said, the dynamics weren't necessarily all the way healthy, very healthy in the food realm, but not healthy in some other spaces. Um, and then I was eating a conventional, uh, like, what do they call it? The standard American diet? Is that what they call it? Yes, that's what they call it. We could call it the standard Canadian diet though because it's yeah. pretty much the same beige boring bland yeah and, and hyper industrialized hyper processed yeah. all of that um so I out of necessity and and uh income restrictions because I was very young and completely on my own um I was I was consuming those foods and I didn't have a lot of time I was a student um and I ended up uh, extremely sick. So mm -hmm. in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, um, which is a, an inflammatory conditions, uh, condition of the bowels, which is pretty, it's pretty nasty. 
Um, and yeah, I like my waves of sort of managing that condition. So I'm in remission now, but the waves of managing it um, have always been rooted in some kind of food mm-hmm. path. Um, and that path has changed over the years from sort of like an obsession with clean eating to now what I, what I would consider a very relaxed approach and sort of this like community approach to food. Um, but it's always, food has always been at the root of my sort of relationship to myself, my relationship to people around me, um, and my, my relationship to the land. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just translated every step of the way into my work. And, um, and, and, and so today I find myself sort of, even though I I work more on the technical side of things when it comes to food, um, very much that like spiritual quality of food is imbued in everything that I do. Hmm. That's lovely. Do you think that your um, illness, when you were in university, was there enough of a connection between food and your body and your education or what, like, was that the path when you were in university because you were starting to see how a poor diet was affecting your body or did your, like, I know you probably didn't know you were eventually going to be working as a food resilience specialist when you were 19, but do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, was there that connection immediately where you realized what you put in affected what you got out and you were like, I want to do this for a living kind of thing? No, not at all. It's a really, thank you for asking that question. Um, So my education is in philosophy and religious studies. So I was not, it's so funny when people ask me like, oh, you must be a dietitian or like, you must be like a, 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 some something to do with health. And no, I, I have a humanities education. And I think it actually prepared me to be a bit more of a systems thinker when it comes to this work. Um, and, and the reason that I studied what I did was because I had this deep yearning, um, and probably why the work of food feels so spiritual for me is because of this, this educational background. But I was very much like at that point in my head, um, and trying to just understand what I had experienced growing up by pursuing an education where I tried to understand why people are the way that they are. Um, and the systems and belief systems that inspire uh, behavior. And so I did that. And when I finished university, I um, I was tr- going to try for law school, um, but the sickness got in the way of that plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that was sort of the first instance of my body telling me uh to to slow down and to to consider um, paying attention to what I want because I think the you know I'm sure many people have heard sort of this refrain of like South Asian parents have this real like expectation that their children internalize which is you become a doctor a lawyer an engineer and so I was like okay well my parents are not very impressed with me but at least I can become a lawyer and impress them that way. Um, and so I think in my mind, like for, for, for much of my life, I, I really operated from this paradigm of like really needing to please my other people. Um, and so to me, the illness was sort of this little whisper in my ear of like, you have to do the things that capture your interest. And so food was the thing that was capturing my interest. 
Um, and I worked for the city of Edmonton for a little while, right after university, as I kind of tried to figure out what to do next. I had not a ton of energy. And so um, mm -hmm. managing my health and managing work was was really difficult. Um, and I I started doing this thing with the city of Edmonton. I think they still do it the, called the Green Shack program. It's really lovely. It's like this summer thing. It's a rec recreation activity for kids in just like low-income neighborhoods to come and play and what I did in that space is I decided to sort of take inspiration from the gardens that I uh, helped with growing up um, and just kind of grow a rogue garden on city property which I think nice. is now because I work for the city and sort of like <laughs> job is to make it possible for people to grow gardens on city property um so we come full circle <laughs> you have of course you have I love it <laughs> and so I did that for you know for the summer and um I had a friend who uh, graduated a couple years ahead of me and he was working for um, this organization that um that were that basically had a bunch of group homes, smaller group homes that kids that kids were living in, and those kids were transitioning out of care, so they were sort of like the same age as me. Um, so it's funny to call them kids, but um, mm -hmm. but youth youth in care who were transitioning out of care, and this was sort of the halfway point for them, and and sort of a an opportunity for them to learn essential life skills before being on their own. And um, this friend of mine came and saw me at work one day and saw me like doing the gardening and hanging out with uh with these little kids and he was just like I think you should come work uh at my organization and so I applied and even though I was like very underqualified um with my education background I I got in and started running culinary programs for these uh young adults and growing gardens and like learning how to work with the resistance of young people who have grown up as well in an industrialized food system. Um, and I think it was possible for me to work with that resistance because I was on that journey myself at the same time. So it was like, you know, like we're doing this together. Like you have ADHD and you're drinking tons of Pepsi and it's like messing things up for you. And I have colitis and I shouldn't be eating so much, you know, crappy fast food. Like yeah. It it was this lovely parallel journey and it taught me a lot about how to just relate to people and build community through food. And so I wasn't planning to answer your question. I wasn't planning to like do the food thing. And I hmm. think over the years, like I've tried to leave food many times. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried and it always comes back for me. And so I think, um, in the last few years, especially, I've come to this realization that it's, I, this might sound a little strange, but just like letting life live through me and just being yeah. where I should be. And I know when, I know when I'm where I should be, I have a, just, it, there's a certain feeling that I have about life. And, yeah. um, and in my case, there is something about food work that I am supposed to be useful for. And so that's why I'm here. That's amazing. And your colitis, much like for me with celiac, um, is this gift that helps you remember where, where you're supposed to be and that you're doing and are in alignment with your purpose. Because I know personally, 
you know, my symptoms will come when I'm pushing against the wave instead of riding it, you know, mm-hmm. or that internalized stress, I guess. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. That's so much of it. And, and this like profound realization that our bodies are um, battlegrounds for a larger system. I think a larger system that is um, really hell bent on just like, extracting and pulling out of the land pulling out of people no regard for individual health community health planetary health all of that and to feel it so viscerally in my body to feel that inflammation in my body and then to see around me like inflammation in the sense of like this this like polarization that we exist in or inflammation in terms of like the planet is literally on fire Um, And so the colitis for me serves as this like very profound metaphor for like what inflammation, um, the harm of inflammation, but also the the way that we can kind of come back into balance, not by trying to force or fix the thing, but by coming into relationship with it. Have you read the book Inflamed by Rupa Marnik? I actually, yeah, I interviewed Raj. um, uh, we, yeah I was at a when I worked at my last job he he came to this conference that uh, we were hosting and um, we had a lovely conversation oh. like a side conversation I'm actually going to try to bug him to mentor me we'll see I don't know if it's going to work oh my gosh me. I would well, really like he mentored me so <laughs> that would be a massive honor and for those of you who don't know what we're talking about the book inflamed is exactly what Simon just said, like this analogy between the inflammation in the body and the inflammation in the planet. Um, what an incredible experience that would be. And the fact that you even got to speak to him is amazing. We'll link to that book in the show notes, actually, because it's, it's one of my favorites, for sure. Yeah, it's, mm. it's actually funny, because I remember reading this, reading the book and actually being mad because I had this, I was like, yeah. it's supposed <laughs> to be my book to write. <laughs> right. don't you hate it when somebody gets to it first I know but that's okay there's there's so much good work to do and I have to say on the topic of writing I love reading your writing you have an incredible newsletter that is uh it's not just fluff it's really deep and beautifully written and um you've said the word systems over and over again and and um in one of your Um, articles you talked about or maybe it was just even in the bio about what the newsletter was about you said something like it's about systems thinking but that's not boring you know kind of stay with me let me explain what that means and I wonder if if you could actually share that and talk about why you're so drawn to systems thinking yeah I you know systems for me and I like I work in the food system but even when I think about the food system it's so interconnected I I mean I think the reason that I'm so drawn to food systems work is because inherently food is a multitude of systems it's a human system it's a planetary system it's about relationships it's about um, you know climate it's just about everything and so Um, And I think we live in an era where we're the byproduct of many generations trying to understand the world by splitting everything up into their sort of smallest pieces. I I think about that, you know, in our our urge to hyper-classify everything, to create a name or a label for every single, you know, 
thing object and we see things as the thing that it is instead of the state of the relationships between all the things. Um, and for me, systems work, whether that's the food system or, or any other system is about not looking at the things, but looking at the relationships between them. And um, there are so many really brilliant and wise people like uh, Teokas and Ghost Horse or um, uh, Vanessa Andriotti, people who talk about sort of like living in verbs instead of in, um, in nouns. And for me, systems work is about, yeah, just like practice and living in nouns and, or living in verbs rather, and, and really thinking about the relationality between uh, all of the living and animate things in the world and, and examining those relationships in order to sort of engender, not just like a change, but like to profoundly change how we understand all of these things that we've broken down into labels and classifications and um, into their very most micro components. Like we're living in an era where we need to build everything back up into its relationality again. Um, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think sometimes people are like, oh, we like really messed up. We did something wrong. But I think it's more like, okay, we broke everything down to its most little parts. How do we build that system back mm -hmm. up again so we understand how everything is connected um, and nothing is in isolation and nothing is siloed. And that's the work. I mean, I think we all know that like, you know, that, that, that feeling of maybe going to a doctor, for example, um, and coming in with one ailment and they send you to a specialist. And this is obviously at the micro level, but it exists at the macro level too. But in an individual body, you go to a specialist. This is what happened with me with when I had my colitis is they send you to a gastroenterologist. Um, and that person is so narrow in their scope that they're not considering any other part of you. And I'm sure you've experienced this too, Barb. Yeah. And so you go in and I, I still remember, I mean, my GI doc, this was back in like 2011 or 2012 was like, this doesn't even have anything to do with what you eat. <laughs> what he told right. me. Um, let alone like this, this, I mean, he mental was, health or yeah, yeah. exactly. He laughed in my face. If I had said, you know, does trauma have anything to do with yeah. this? In fact, it did. And it was actually, those two things were deeply connected, but in our world, you have colitis or trauma. No one looks at the way in which all of these things are so deeply woven and interconnected with each other. And so I am attracted to systems work, I think, because I feel like my, I guess it comes back again to that sort of like that path of, of finding wholeness in myself is that I stopped looking at myself as a collection of parts and saw the wholeness in myself. And then when I saw the wholeness in myself, I began to see the connectedness I had with everything around me. And so for me, that's what systems work is about. And, and then it's not boring. It's about coming in again into relationship with everything that's around you. Hmm. It's that Aesop's fable, the blind man and the elephant. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yep. You know, each touching a different part and saying the elephant is a is a snake because they were touching the tail or is like a fan because they're touching the ear it's that's exactly it and and in relation to food thinking about even just 
getting your food past that, you know, the individualization of getting your food passed through a window in your car by yourself um, yes. and eating it driving in traffic on your own versus a community table filled with um, people who help remind you of worth and value and connection. Yeah. Absolutely. And then also just the ways in which we I've been really fascinated lately by the idea that when we consume, there's this real, I, I'm sure that also you've encountered this in the work that you've done for, for many people, there's this belief that, oh, if I just eat perfectly, like there's that, there's that one yes. sort of time of getting your food handed to you through the, the window and driving alone and eating it. But there's this sort of, in this culture, the antidote to that is going into the store and getting the like really expensive thing at Blush Lane that's like perfectly balanced, perfectly healthy, good in all the ways, morally virtuous. And I'm using, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes um, mm -hmm. because it's better, it's more good. Um, and there's this tendency to really kind of believe that if you just do that by yourself, that's that right it's that somehow it's better. And um, I think in the work that I've done, and obviously between sort of the city and working in group homes, there's a whole like work journey in there that I've seen over and over and over and over again, that it is the quality of relationship. And food is the intermediary for all of those relationships that creates the deepest kind of health. And um that kind of health can't even be achieved by eating per perfectly again in air quotes. <laughs> mm -hmm. That is beautifully said. It gave me chills. And, you know, when we look at the blue zones, um, the people that live to be over a hundred, it is <laughs> never would we talk about a blue zone where people don't talk to each other and they all eat on their own perfect food. It is, it is that community and that connection piece that is keeping people alive the longest and in a, happy way with very you know compression of morbidity right it, it's that's a massive part of it mm, I love it I love it <laughs> and when we talk about food memories we don't ever say oh it was this one time I was sitting in my car <laughs> very rarely <laughs> not that you can't be connected listen you, we've all had that experience where we've done something and gone everyone leave me alone with the french fries that's definitely <laughs> And it's a good thing, but I'm actually really glad that you brought up the other side of it because, you know, as an instructor of nutrition over the years, I've watched like um, the tendency towards mm, destructive behavior um, in that um, search for health perfection by having the privilege to spend money on very expensive supplements and food and all that. And listen, all that's great. We're glad it's all there. I was just at Blush Lane today. I'm super happy for, <laughs> for, the, for the food that's there, right? Like, yeah, hundred percent. But um, the point is it's, it's the dailiness of life and how we're sharing that food that tends to make the greatest difference. And therefore I'd like to think is deconstructing the system that we're in, hopefully to reconstruct to where you're, you know, the ideal place that you're talking about which is where we're all connected to each other yeah and um, doing the meals and, and cooking together and eating together and and viewing food is so like that essential piece of community which we we tend not to do right now yeah 
And that could be anything. It could be a simple soup. It could be a, it doesn't have to be, you know, locally grown and perfect. Like you said, it can just be people doing it together. And I sure found with my work with kiddos um, in the trans and um, gender fluid community that again, like once they started to connect with each other, that's where we saw the joy, you know, yeah. it, it, it's about the food, but it's about the connection and the joy. Which actually leads me to my next question, which would be interesting for you, because it's what food brings you the most joy and why. But it, but we might be talking that it isn't necessarily just food, that it, that it's maybe more that connection piece. But do you have anything to share that way? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's. I'm not the kind of person who can be like, it's this soup. Uh, it's a little more complex than that for me. <laughs> There's no one food. There's no one food. But I think. Um, a few things come to mind. So the first is that I really just so deeply appreciate anything that someone else has grown for me or that I have uh, grown in, in my garden. Um, there's just something very special about that process. Um, after that or not after it's not there's no hierarchy but the the second thing that comes up for me is something that someone has processed for me if that makes sense so you know we often think to ourselves oh processed food processed foods are bad but um you know processing exists in many ways and I recently um got a few cans of uh, like jars of of canned tomatoes uh, and pasta sauce from a friend and just this sort of like when when somebody makes something for you, there's just this um, energetic quality that's imbued to it. And um, and then I took those can like those those uh, preserved tomatoes and added them to a stew. And then I gave that stew to someone nice. who, yeah, whose mom is dealing with some some illness. And so there was just this sort of like I I love when there's sort of you can trace this this pathway where it got grown in someone's garden and then she canned it and then you know and then it ended up with me and I made soup for someone and he shared it with his mom who's got cancer it, I just I yeah. love like, that relationality piece of it that that people are making things for each other um and so the third thing that comes up for me is um this fermentation club I've been doing um which is not one food in particular but um I've really committed to practicing, you know, making my home an open space once a month to practice fermentation together. And um, the reason for that is because I think there's so much that we can learn from the ways in which um, food is alchemized through the process of fermentation um, and practicing it together and practicing, uh, you know, this art of, of, um, transforming foods through, you know, salt and air. It's yeah. just like magic. It's so cool. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, and so I think for me, my, these, these favorite foods then become, it's another form of processing, right? Like that you're processing these beautiful, you know, material that are coming from the earth and turning them into something that's bountiful and, and rich in bacteria that, support you know the the colonies that are because you're not just you you're this collection of you're a home to all these like bacterial colonies and you're helping those colonies out so 
I just like, I think that's so magical that food can be this pathway to making that happen and, and allowing for all of those different parts that are all connected to each other to have this like nutrition that's just traveling through and, and adding more. Goodness to your body, <laughs> right? Like, I agree. Did, your family's from Pakistan. Did you, did you grow up eating, um, speaking of preserved food did you grow up eating chicken pickle chicken pickle no well I mean like we had okay so do you know about it mango pickle and then I have char chicken which is like it's like a curry that's made with pickling spices and it's so yummy so I wonder but I've never had chicken pickle before yeah um a friend from India on the weekend was telling me about how his dad makes chicken pickle and at first I was like what are you talking about? But then it occurred to me, you really, we're just talking about salt and, and water here. You can, you can preserve and pickle anything. And he said, it's delicious. It's kind of like, it's parts of the chicken broken down into little bones and, and, you know, um, all kinds of beautiful Indian spices and the pickling brine. And it, you would serve it like the way you would serve olives, except it's chicken. It's oh so interesting. Mm-hmm. I know it's right. Yeah. Those traditional food practices connect us back to our to our people too you know I love that you're doing that do you have like a little group of people like the same people each week or each month or how how are you doing that the this process of uh of fermenting for me has also been a process of like learning from the ways in which cultures proliferate because it's just culture like Mm. bacteria cultures culture yes yeah, trying to create we call it cultures club so you're invited if you'd like it's just a drop-in space like anyone can come um oh, and the cool. idea yeah so it's just like there's a whatsapp group I just keep adding people to the whatsapp group it's at some point I'm gonna have to build a little more structure because it is becoming a little chaotic but yeah and, and I just like as soon as I know how many people are coming I purchase ingredients and sort of like it's it's very simple stuff right now but um Last time we made kimchi and ginger bugs. And so people had kimchi and, and fresh probiotic soda um, for the for their homes. For the we're doing one this Saturday and, and it's going to be cranberries fermented two ways. So we're gonna try with honey and with salt and see how it goes. Um, interested in chickpea miso. So yeah, it just it changes and it's it's very much a practice and you know, people will post pictures in the WhatsApp group of like something going wrong, like a mold yeah. or, you know, and, and there's just something so beautiful about experimenting together and figuring mm-hmm. out what, what works, what doesn't, why didn't this work out? Um, somebody did a second ferment of her ginger bug and she was like, oh, it was like way too funky. Oh, there's all this <laughs> growing. So it's just like, it's so fantastic. And and it's it's been really yeah I like almost see my house as like the little mason jar that these things are for all of us to cement ourselves yeah yeah I love it and I love um using the word culture in that way that's never occurred to me to to make that connection between human culture and bacteria culture even though I talk about it all the time isn't that funny (laughs) that's wonderful um for the last few years, every year, I've taught a series of cooking classes online. And for the fermenting one, I always bring in Luca Simmons, who was a podcast guest. Um, she's the queen. 
Yes, yeah, she is. she is. And she knows everything. We'll give her yet another plug because I love her. And um, if you want to know about fermenting, she is the person to ask. So, and it was great because, you know, again, with the sharing, like she shared some of her um, um, uh, dairy culture. And that was just, it's a, it's a gift. It's an honor when somebody shares something like that with you, or if they share their sourdough starter with you, you know, and they're like, this is George, you know, <laughs> my baby, you can have some, you know, it's wonderful. Well, that's what I mean. Like when I think about favorite foods, there's just something so profound about like realizing in this world where we are so, um, and I mean, there's so many things that I'm grateful to our contemporary food system for. I, I don't yeah. know that we burn it all down or I, I'm never like, I don't exist in those sorts of polarities, but, um, but boy, like what an empowering feeling to remember that like, there are these ways that we can take care of each other and be a little bit less reliant on purchasing things and, um, and, and, and share things that we've created that. I think sometimes people think that creativity is this, you know, ominous, difficult thing, but it really isn't when it comes to food. Like it's so easy to share something that you've made and, and have it affect someone else's home. And, and it's just, it's such a beautiful, such a beautiful gift to offer other people. Agreed. Especially when the cost of food is what it is currently. Yeah. It's yeah. for so many reasons. It's relieving. It's, it's, it bonds you to the person I think for me it's um when somebody gives me a can of peaches that's always my like that's so precious to me can if anybody who has canned peaches yeah (laughs) okay we do ask our guests what are some songs that you might pair with your food memories or songs that you like to cook with because again we do believe in the power of arts and culture (laughs) right to um to enhance our food experience so do you have some songs to share with us? You know, I will, uh, I'll send the proper list over, but one thing that I just like would highly recommend everybody do whenever they're making a meal is to just subscribe to um, NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts on YouTube. And um, and I just find that it's like usually about a half hour or so. And it's like the perfect accompaniment to like a weeknight meal. Uh, oh. My favorite one over the pandemic, I listened to John Batiste's Tiny Desk concert probably about 400 times. I'm oh, like not even exaggerating. I love him so much. I'm like uh, on Spotify. I think I, I we got unwrapped, that Spotify unwrapped or whatever at the end yeah. of the year. And he was the I, guy. I was in his top 0.5% of listeners. So obviously I'm obsessed. So I, I love John Batiste, but I also some other, um, some other tiny desk concerts that I love to cook too are Tash Sultana. Uh, they're amazing. Um, and I really like Anderson Pack's tiny desk concert. So yeah, I'm a big fan of, of those. Unfortunately, oh. hard, you can't get them on Spotify, but definitely worth like having YouTube going in the background. And I will give you a list of some some of my favorite John Batiste songs to uh, sure. to do a playlist. That sounds great. Um, wow, he's wonderful, and you 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 have great resources. Like this is like the fourth thing where you said to me, "Do you subscribe to this?" And I don't subscribe <laughs> to any of those. Things. So thank you. Now I know who the resource queen is, and I really appreciate it. So um, that's great. Um, so if you're cooking away to him, 
Um, what is a recipe that is important to you that you might like to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I will, you know, I think my food memories are so rooted in the sort of spices mm-hmm. um, and traditional food ways of my culture, of my South Asian, Punjabi, um, Pakistani culture. Um And so I really, really love lentils and chickpeas. It's very much those are foods that I grew up with. Um, And I would share of all of them, my favorite is an Amritsari chole, which is a very traditional Mughal cuisine. So that food came in sort of during the time of the Mughal Empire and before partition when India was just India and not India and Pakistan. Um, and Mughal cuisine was sort of this beautiful fusion between what was coming from Central Asia and the Middle East and uh, the cooking methods of um, the indigenous peoples who were living in India. And so it's just a lovely flavor mishmash. And Amritsari chole is a chickpea curry that's just, it's so luscious and it has like sour flavors, but uh, light spice and it's just so good. So yes, that's the one. I can't wait to try it. I can't wait to try your recipe specifically. Thank you. That sounds amazing. Do you have anything that you'd like to tell us about any projects that you're working on or papers that you've published or anything you'd like, um, yeah, like us to know more about so we can all keep track of you and your good work that you're doing within food resiliency? Yeah, so I do write a newsletter, which I wouldn't say is like you mentioned, um, it's it's not necessarily... Um, Food related, though I think in the new year uh, I would I'm I'm gonna try to do like a very long multi-week series on the food system, but it's called Whole Systems Healing. It's a Substack, um, and I just for me writing is just a practice, and I love being able to share with others. And so, um, and I'm kind of like I just the social media thing is just like it gives me too many headaches now. I feel too sad when I scroll through. And so yeah. I just tried to get off. Um, and so I, I try to share ideas through uh, this longer format of, of newsletter writing. Um, and so that's one space. I wrote a paper uh, last year that got published in Canadian Food Studies, which is a, a free online journal that so the, the paper is completely free and easy to access. Um, and that paper was on the transformative role of food in uh, systems advocacy work and and how we can sort of um, use food and and de- the deep relationality and I actually explore culture in the human form not in the bacteria bacterial form in this paper and and how different culture and different cultural paradigms can inform advocacy work um, and then uh, I not as a representative of the city of Calgary but. Um, So I I won't be speaking for the city of Calgary, but the work that I do for the city is around food resiliency and and we should be going to council with some kind of um, strategy next year. So if that's something that piques your interest, just keep your eye out on the city website and hopefully council says, yes, this is a cool idea. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's so exciting and so needed right now specifically and particularly. And I'm so glad that you are in that role. You're the perfect person to be there. Thank you. And sorry, one more thing I just want to say about resiliency and food is that, um, you know, we live in a time where I think uh, increasingly there's uh, a lot of crisis that's happening and more crisis to come. 
um, because of the instability of so many of our systems. So I talk about systems healing, but the reality of the system we live in right now is it's deeply fragile. Um, so there's there's more and more crisis coming along. And I think for me, one of my the deepest stories I hold about food is its capacity to put us into deep relationality with each other and with the land. Um, and there's this amazing climate guy named Bill McKibben, and he talks about this need for social trust and cohesion um, as we continue to sort of live through this climate crisis and these uh, times of instability and, and fragility. And I think if there's like one thing that I hope people sort of think about or take away when it comes to food, it's that Food is this pathway to social trust, to community resiliency. It's not just about our individual resiliency. It's about building the bonds and support systems uh, that are needed in order for us to survive these tough times. And food is like the most profound and powerful pathway that we can leverage to get there, I think. That is beautifully said and a perfect place for us to end today. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight and your enthusiasm and um, your depth of knowledge about food. Everyone is very lucky to have listened to you today. I really appreciate you being here, Sima. Thanks, Barb. And congratulations on all the amazing work that you're doing. I'm just so inspired by everything that you do around trans youth. And it's something that I care about a lot um, as well. And, and just like so excited to see what you continue to do. Thank you. Well, the kiddos deserve it. We all deserve it. We all deserve good food, bottom line. 